from their studio in the Feeding Arizona building in Youngtown, Arizona, it's the Boomer and the Babe Show with Pete Peters and Deborah Brown. Join Pete and Deborah and their guests as they give voice to 78 million baby boomers from coast to coast and border to border. Now here are the Boomer and the Babe, Pete Peters and Deborah Brown. And welcome to the Boomer and the Babe Show. This is 121012. It is a Monday, and we are prepared as much as we're going to be at this late date, anyhow, for for the Christmas holidays. Uh, I think we still have a lot of work to do, like putting up trees and lights and all that good stuff, and I hope uh, that our listeners are not too far behind in their plans. I hope you're ahead of your prospective plans, so you can sit and relax and enjoy it all. I want to remind everybody that uh, we also have a website. It's boomerandthebabe.com. Check that out and see everything that the Boomer and the Babe is involved in. Please sign up and get on our mailing list, and you will receive our monthly, every four to six weeks, actually, online magazine, Boomer Experience Speaks. In addition, you can find out about some of the other programs that we have on the Boomer and the Babe Network, as well as uh, some of the books and authors that we deal with. Many of them also have their own shows on our network. Without uh, further commercial from me, I want to make sure that we introduce our guest uh, early on and, and get into our discussion. It's a, a very interesting discussion, I'm sure, and a very, uh, very important discussion. And uh, my guest is Dr. Christine Kevorkian. She is uh, has a doctorate in the study of thanatology or thanatology. Uh, I hope she's going to correct me on that pronunciation, which is the study uh, in the science of death and dying. Welcome to the show, Dr. Christine Kevorkian. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for having me. Did I pronounce that right, than- thanatology? Thanatology, yes. Thanatology, okay. I stuck an extra N in there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the, uh, one of the things that uh, everybody will obviously be asking or want to have an answer to is uh, the the name Kevorkian and if there's a relationship but before I get to that, let me ask you to give us your um, two-minute movie, as Deborah would say if she were here. Unfortunately, she's not with us today. Uh, but your two-minute movie with regard to uh, how did you get involved in doing what you're doing now, and then also um, anything else that you may have had in your history that has led you in this direction. Okay. I actually started off in... <laughs> totally different subject. I studied whales and dolphins, and I was majoring in the study of whales and dolphins, marine biology and zoology, and ended up having some life issues that came about and totally changed my plans, and ended up getting into social work and had intended to just work as a medical social worker in hospitals. And in my undergraduate social work degree program, my mentor and professor, John Guy, had suggested that I perform or conduct my internship at hospice. And at the time, I didn't know what hospice was. My family had never had to use hospice in any way. Um, I learned about it. I decided to do my internship at hospice and kind of took to it like a fish to water. And from that point on, I've just been involved in end-of-life care. And fortunately, though, when I was working on my doctorate, one professor challenged me and asked me what I would possibly contribute to thanatology that hadn't already been contributed before. And I panicked and stressed out, and I said, well, you know, I'd always wanted to get a doctorate in marine biology and just go back to studying whales. And as I was looking up what had happened between the time that I had studied whales um, to that time, I had kind of missed out because I was working on my social work undergraduate and then my master's degree in social work. I noticed that that there had been tremendous decline in the whale populations worldwide. Um, Just environmentally, we were not going in a very good direction. And that's how I came up with the term environmental grief. And I actually wrote my dissertation and conducted all my research on this term environmental grief. 
which is the grief reaction stemming from the environmental loss of ecosystems caused by natural or man-made events. And I came up to Washington State and interviewed people who were involved with the southern resident killer whale population up here that was declining. Back in the 1970s, uh, SeaWorld all around were were capturing the killer whales from up here, and the population really struggled to get back to its full capacity after what SeaWorld had done. And we're still kind of struggling. There are a lot of issues here for the southern residents, but they're doing a little bit better, I think. Um, but it was nice to kind of come full circle. So I'm, I'm still... I still have my foot in the whale world, but most of the rest of me is in the death and dying world. But I'm able to combine my passions and and pretty excited about being able to do that. Well, that that uh, it sounds like you are very multifaceted with regard to uh, your endeavors and so on and so forth. But now... And I thank you for that information. But now here's the big question, the one I'm sure we know is coming. Are you related to Dr. Jack Kevorkian? I have been asked that question by just about everybody. I would imagine. And (laughs) I am not blood-related. However, when I met him last year and even prior to that, I'd been in touch with him and or his assistant, Ruth Holmes, and had been referring to him as Uncle Jack for so long, just for fun. Um, And when people would ask me and I'd say, no, that I wasn't related to him, people didn't believe me. So I just started saying, fine, he's my uncle. And last year when we met, he said that was fine, that I could refer to him as my uncle. Unfortunately, he died soon after, but I um, I still refer to him as Uncle Jack. Uncle Jack, but there is actual no... There's no blood relation, no. In fact, um, he said so in several interviews. Um, Mm -hmm. And we actually changed our name to Kevorkian during the Armenian Genocide um, so that my grandfather and uncle could could get away, could escape and and get away from the Turkish army. Um, So it, it holds very strong meaning for me. People have asked me to change my name, and I just, I won't do it. It's just... If, if we hadn't changed the name to Kevorkian, I wouldn't be here today. So it, it's it's a very important name for me and my family. Very nice, yeah. very very nice. Uh, so there's certain there's certainly a, a great deal of loyalty to to the name. Yes. Uh, obviously, in your history, um, the uh, getting getting right into the to, to the topic. Um, uh, well, actually, one one step before getting into the topic, you mentioned when we were talking before that uh, there was a great deal of um, oh blowback, shall we say, with regard to you using the name, and uh, mm-hmm. it has well, it's it's been a hindrance to you at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was interesting because when I was working in a hospice years ago, I prior to that I was just trying to find work, and I had applied pretty much everywhere and at some skilled nursing facilities and adult care homes um, just looking for work. And when I was doing hospice, I met up with a woman who worked in a skilled nursing facility who knew my name, and and she had asked if I had ever applied at a skilled nursing facility, and I'd forgotten the name. And, And I said, yes, I did apply there. And she said, yes, I saw your application, and you were the best qualified, but we wouldn't hire you because of your name. And... The, the population, for for most part, most people don't know too many Armenians. And in the Armenian community, the last name Kevorkian is almost as common as Smith. It's just that most people don't know that. So when you hear Kevorkian, most people think, oh, you must be related. Um, and it's just not the case. So it was it was really nice because when I met Uncle Jack last year, he was speaking at UCLA for an Armenian medical conference. Um, and I had told him about that, and he was very upset about it. He he really he was angry that that people were were not aware enough and wouldn't even give me a chance. And that's been the case a lot in the medical establishment, just because there are so many physicians who, and the whole, the AMA is not too keen on physician assisted suicide. However, it's interesting because 
when I was in Southern California, I worked with a medical speakers group, and they would send me around to various hospitals, and the most popular presentation I offered was on physician-assisted suicide. And while doctors would state to me that it's not right, that it shouldn't be done, other physicians would come to me, several, maybe 20, would come to me after each presentation and tell me that they had given and, and assisted with a suicide, not for patients, but for friends and family. So it, it's kind of interesting. Um, but Uncle Jack did, did a great deal, and, and his work actually, his requirements were much more uh, stringent than what the states offer. I mean, in Washington and Oregon and Montana who, that offer physician-assisted suicide or the Death with Dignity Act, their requirements are a lot less than what Uncle Jack had. And he, I don't know if you you or your audience had ever seen his interview on 60 Minutes, but he would actually go to see the patients and keep saying, well, let's let's discuss this again in two weeks or a month. And he would keep kind of drawing it out to see how, where the patients were um, mentally and, and physically. And in the States, they asked that the physicians... Um, determine whether or not the patient is mentally competent. And some physicians just aren't that great at that. And I know this for a fact because I've met several physicians who, at conferences who say that, you know, that it's best if they get a psychiatric evaluation and some physicians choose not to. But Uncle Jack really did that. He really pushed the envelope and wanted to make sure that the patients really knew what they were doing um, and giving them that opportunity and giving them that choice. And when we spoke earlier, we mentioned um, organ donation. Uncle Jack was a real proponent of that. He he had actually fought for if we were going to be putting prisoners to death using the death penalty, why not harvest their organs afterwards? Why not create it in such a way that instead of injecting some poison into their system, that death be some other fashion? and harvest their organs because there is such a lack of organs for people. So he he was a huge pioneer and just so far ahead of his time. And unfortunately, the media just completely mutilated him. So well, the, the, media the, treat, the media treated it, uh, uh, the whole situation in many cases as some kind of a ghoulish thing. Right. And, uh, and in reality... I am of the opinion, correct me if if you don't see this, or tell me if you don't see this as the case, there are doctors every day in hospitals as we sit and talk today that are in some manner, shape, or form uh, committing physician-assisted uh, uh, passings uh, mm -hmm. with patients that are critically ill, uh, and they're just up in the morphine. And, and, yeah. and isn't that, in essence, doing the same thing? Well, it's interesting because there are other countries. We'll look at other countries and say, well, you're euthanizing your patients. And they'll look at us and they'll say, but you're terminally sedating. And, and in their mind, it's, it's terminal sedation could be just a euphemism for euthanasia. Exactly. Um, we, what's interesting is that there there are I've I've met so many incredible physicians who you know would just give their left arm for their patients. They are so compassionate and so loving and so kind and they do everything they can for their patients and will do anything that they can to keep their patients out of pain and suffering. But there's also the other side of physicians who will say, you know, I don't want to give too much morphine because I don't want the person to become addicted. Well the person's dying. And addiction is not a problem there. It's keep them safe. Keep them comfortable. Keep them right. from suffering. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's in their training. It's it's in their religion. It's it's just who they are. And it's it's very sad, but there are some physicians who, you know, still have that God complex who think that they know best and don't listen to patients and others that do. And, and it's just, it's like every business. You have some good and some bad. And fortunately, I've met some really, really good physicians, so I, I don't want to say that the whole establishment is horrible because it's not. There are some amazing physicians out there. It's just if you're lucky to find them. And most people don't know that you can fire 
quote unquote your physician. If you're yeah. in a hospital and and you don't like your physician or or your nurse or or anybody, get somebody else. Right. And well, you can do this. And if you have a problem, talk to a nursing director, talk to the bioethicist there, get somebody else who you're more comfortable with. It's amazing you say that, and 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 I had that occasion uh, when my when my father was ill. He uh, uh, died of complications of uh, of Alzheimer's dementia, and um, uh, it, it it was a case where he was in a, a skilled nursing home, and they were putting tape on him whenever they because he would bang his arm and the skin would tear, and then mm-hmm. they would put a dressing on it and they would put it on with tape. And, of course, when they took the tape off, they would rip off more skin. Right. And I said, what the heck is going on here? And, I mean, I had directions on in the when he would go back into the hospital. I would put directions over the head of his bed, and they said, you can't do that due to HIPAA laws. And I said, wait a minute. This man is obviously in dire straits. He's going to pass. We know what's going to happen here. Don't start restricting the fact that he's going to get startled and whatever, whatever along the way by the fact that you're not willing to let me put a note up there because otherwise I'm going to stay here 24-7 and retrain every nurse that comes in this room. Mm-hmm. And I said, and that's, and I just told him that's not right. I mean, that's just bull. I said, then put it on his chart and make sure everybody reads it, highlight it, circle it, make put neon lights on it. I don't care what you have to do, but make sure that everybody knows. And then when he went to... Um, he went to the uh, uh, skilled skilled nursing uh, facility, and we were having this issue. I went to the to the administrator uh, to the medical administrator, and I said, "I don't want that woman in that room again." I said, "She doesn't have any compassion for this man or the bed, or his bedmate." I said, "I don't want her anywhere near my father." Period. Mm-hmm. End of conversation. And I think my name was mud around there, and I didn't care. At that juncture, mm-hmm. it's just you just don't care, and you've got to be willing to speak up, don't you? Uh, and as a patient's advocate, but also if you know you know what the outcome is going to be, at yeah. least make them comfortable. Yeah, I'm so sorry, Pete, that you had to go through that because that whole issue adds so much to the grief that the family feels later, and mm-hmm. I don't think that medical professionals really understand that. That it, because when when somebody dies, it's it's kind of locked in our memories. We remember the whole incident, especially if it's very traumatic. And I know just from hearing from, from patients that I've worked with and in my own experience, when you're in so much grief, it's so hard to be able to step up and advocate. And, and I tell people when it comes to advanced directives, you know, ask for your healthcare proxy to be somebody who isn't family, somebody who, who's in the medical system, a medical professional, so that they can have some some distance a little bit from your loved one or from yourself, but that they're able to navigate the medical system well enough and advocate for you. I had a situation when my mother was in the hospital a couple years ago. She ended up with acute pancreatitis completely out of the blue, and one nurse that she had kept calling her grandma, and I explained, my mother is not a grandmother. Please don't remind her of that fact because she's always wanted to be a grandmother, and she said, well, okay, I'll just call her by her first name. I said, no, I prefer that you just call her Mrs. Kevorkian. She isn't somebody you know. This is not somebody familiar to you. Have the respect for her, please. And she said, well, this this nurse argued with me. And, and I I had had it with her. And I was in so much grief and so much anger and so much stress over how they were treating my mother that I did go to the bioethicist there and said, you know, I can't take this anymore. I need I need you to help advocate for me. And she did, and I was very, very grateful for her for doing that. But, again, it's people just need to know it's not just a job, and it's, it's hard to explain that to a lot of people. Nursing, being a physician, being a respiratory therapist, an x-ray tech, an aide, it's not just a job. You, you are in control of our loved ones. You are in control of our lives essentially, at some point. And I think it, it needs to be more than just a job to people. But that's that's probably my naive thinking about it. But, boy, when I was working in hospice, it wasn't a job. It was it was an honor to be to be with people and to, to do my best 
and, and everything that I could do to help somebody pass a little bit easier with, with some grace and dignity. That was the goal. It, well, it may not be for everybody, but that's it. Well, it, it's amazing because I, I, I can look back on the, the situation as it involved my my father. And, and the when he was in the hospital, uh, there was one – he was in and out of the hospital. He was in the care facility, into the hospital. The care facility, back and forth, a couple of different times, three times. And then finally the last time he was from the hospital, he went to hospice, and, and nine days later he passed. Uh, but when he was when he was in the care facility, it was to many of those people to many of those people a job. There was mm-hmm. one gentleman, a big, tall, strapping, bald-headed man, that was that my father for some reason took a liking to, and he to my dad, and he was there and cared for him. Every time he was on shift, he made sure that he had my father. And nice. I mean, and and he put. He helped him with things and got him through things that the others would have just wiped him up, cleaned him up, rolled him over, and sent him back to bed. And he was gentle, and he showered him, and he bathed him, and he, you know, anything he could do to make his stay there more comfortable. And as he was in hospice, and the hospice was uh, attached, and when he would walk in, this this my dad would have a, an appreciable uh, change in mood. And and when uh, he was in hospice, and he was, you know, kind of in and out, in and out, and and um, and it, this gentleman walked in to to see him, and I don't know, I think he brought him a. a I don't know, some kind of something to eat. He and my dad had already decided that he didn't want to eat at that point anymore. But uh, my, he opened his eyes. He had a sparkle in his eyes when that when that man was there, and it was and it was very very nice to see. And the other one we had, we had one hospitalist, a doctor, who when it came time for him, for somebody to tell us really what was going on. He asked us to step out of the room, and he said, "We've done everything for your father that medicine can do. It's time to mm-hmm. consider hospice." And he was the mm-hmm. one of them. He was one that was straight with us, and also a very caring, uh, a caring physician. And, and to see the to see those folks, it, it, it makes you feel good, and you just wish that all of them could be that way. And mm-hmm. you wish that all of them didn't have to do all of the paperwork and the bull crap, pardon my Spanish, that they have to do. They have to justify everything they do so they wouldn't be taken to task and taken to uh, uh, taken to court for malpractice. Mm-hmm. And it's all, it's all about the insurance a lot, isn't it, Doctor? It is. It's, it's about the insurance. It's about just justifying and, and covering your butt with everything. I, I know most of the people I know who are still in the medical profession, just com- complain constantly about the amount of paperwork, that they're spending more time on paperwork than with their patients. And th- most people don't go into it. Most people, when you're in medical school or nursing school or, or even in, in the social work program, you're not saying, oh, I can't wait to get in and do paperwork. You know, people want to say, I want to be with the patient. I want to help people. I want to help and heal people. I don't want to sit around doing paperwork all day. But unfortunately, that's the reality. If you're spending more time on paperwork than with patients. Well, that's that's true. I mean, there's always the, uh, document, document, document. That's all. That's, mm-hmm. that's really all they have to do. And I, like you say, uh, they didn't they didn't go through medical school and residency and internship and everything else just so they could sit and uh, sit by the desk there and fill out paperwork and give orders to the nurses. Uh, yeah. It's it's uh, it's it's pretty interesting. But sadly, they're also not learning as much on end-of-life care. In medical schools, depending on the school that you go to, there have been articles written about this recently, is the fact that um, some schools will spend a little bit more time on end-of-life care than others. And so most of the bulk of the learning is when you're in the hospitals, when you're doing your residency. And that can be very challenging for some people. And I know some physicians really have a hard time with the dying aspect. And they'll do everything they can to keep a person alive because, again, they're trained to. Um, letting somebody go is, is a huge challenge. And, and for some people it could be felt as, a, as though it's a failure when it's, it's nature, it's, it's life, that we're not meant to live forever. But it is too bad that there isn't enough training or more training for end-of-life care. Well, that's, 
that's the thing that, that that I find in what you just said. I find a little intriguing because these are physicians, these are doctors, these are people that die that deal with uh, uh, death and dying every day, and they know as well, if not better than anybody, because they do realize it, that dying is a part of life, and uh, as such. Uh, they can play a, a very positive role in that, and for mm-hmm. some reason, uh, they have their own they have their own taboos, don't they? They they have their own um, um, idiosyncrasies regarding it. Yes, yes. And in fact, it's interesting because referring back to when I was doing presentations for physicians, I had often asked how many have their advanced directives completed. How many of them have spoken to their loved ones? Where do they want to die? And most often, <laughs> doctors rarely raise their hands. There were a few people who had actually completed their advanced directives. Uh, most people just didn't want to discuss it. And they, they too, fell into this, this notion of if I write out my advanced directive, if I write out my will, that means I'm going to die soon, which is it's so not the case. But it's interesting how many people... You know who aren't even who just don't believe in in any sort of kind of hokey stuff at all. Um, will say, well, I, I can't write out my will or my advance directive because that means that that I'll die soon. Well, it, it's it's interesting. Uh, my both of my parents have their uh, advance directives. They have everything paid for. The how it's going to be, the where it's going to be, and the when it's going to be. And uh, I mean, it's. I mean, I hate I hate to say it in these crass terms, but when my father died, and he took his last breath, and and I was there with him when he did, it was it was slick in that I went and I got the head nurse to come in, and uh, they pronounced him, and they called the mortuary. The mortuary came and got him. And that was it, and I was out of it, other than to tell the people at the mortuary that next that same morning how many death certificates would I like to have copies of, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the fact that there was really nothing else that they wanted. Yes, just give us the basic uh, the basic urn, and that's what we're going to put in the niche. And mm-hmm. that was it. That was it. It took me ten, my Amy and my mother, ten minutes. It was painless, as painless as it can be from that aspect of it. I mean, the death part was something else again, of course, obviously, but mm-hmm. but the the physical handling of it uh, uh, was was absolutely effortless, and it was uh, it was very much a relief to me. It was uh, it was a gift. I mean, that's what people don't realize that you can give your uh, uh, your survivor is a real gift by doing this. Yeah, and yeah, you put it beautifully, Pete. It's, it's so sad because some people who don't make these arrangements really struggle in the end. And I remember with, with one hospice family I had, they they went to the funeral home after their, their loved one had died, and the funeral home was not the most compassionate. I think they were very much more geared into the profit. And they ended up selling a, a, a funeral package to this family that they could not afford. And they came back to to the agency and, and told me what was going on. And I immediately went to the funeral home and said, look, so you can't do this to these people. They don't have money. They can't afford this $15,000 funeral that you just paid or just sold them. Um, and it was a horrible situation. I remember just, just in my own family having to deal with some funerals recently where you know we're going through the 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 loved one had actually made most of the arrangements um knew exactly what they wanted said this is this is what I want you just deal with it and when you go to the funeral home and you're trying to find the casket it's it they can be very expensive and I don't know if if your audience knows that Costco sells urns and caskets and what I did recently was I actually bargained and kind of um, I told a, a funeral director that I could get the same casket at Costco had actually gone and printed the picture of the casket at Costco, took it in with me and said, I'll get the casket from Costco unless you could match that same price. So I had to haggle for Costco price 
at a funeral home, which exactly. I don't think anybody should have to do when you're in grief. It's just not, you should not have to do that. But you shouldn't also have to pay two or $3,000 more for a casket. You could get a cost bill for 1000 bucks. Exactly, exactly. And and after all, what's going to the reality, the, the hard, cold fact reality, forget, you have it's hard to take the emotion out of it when the guy is sitting there yeah. handing you, handing you Kleenex after Kleenex so you can dry your tears, and uh, and in the meantime he's saying, well, I, I'm I'm sure Dad would like this, or I'm sure Mom would have liked exactly. this, you know, yeah. and, and <laughs> if you've got if you don't have it written down, if you don't have it prearranged, um, you're going to be you're going to be sitting there, you're going to be hooked, you're going to get hooked, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, my mother had everything done, and they even had the plot and everything at the cemetery. Everything was taken care of except for the casket, and I had to pull the whole Costco thing out again and haggle um, just because I, I I just refused to allow the funeral industry to rip me off or anybody else. It's, it's, just, it's just not right. A friend of mine years ago uh, in the early 90s had a casket gallery in Ventura County, in Southern California, and he was selling caskets at such a low price, mostly for people who were dying from AIDS at the time. He was trying to help the AIDS community in some way because the funeral homes were increasing the prices hundreds of percentage points, maybe 400% from what the actual cost was. And and so he said, I'm going to try and intervene, and he got eaten up by the funeral homes, Hmm. almost kicked out of town because of what he was trying to do. So things are a little bit better now because when you walk into to any funeral, mortuary or any funeral service, the prices have to be listed and they are right near the door. So you have the right to see everything before anybody kind of draws you in. But still, the prices are high and, and you know, go to Costco. Get Not that I'm getting kickbacks from Costco for saying this, but they have really pretty urns and caskets there. And you can oh. you can get stuff sent to the mortuary or the funeral home. Well, I keep telling Deborah that has just when, when I got, give him give him the uh, give him the coffee can and tell him to put the ashes in here. And uh, you can do that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Um, it is. When here's what I've noticed just recently. I had occasion I had occasion to be in the hospital for outpatient surgery. Uh, but even for outpatient surgery, they're filling out the questions and the, the questionnaires and so on and so forth. And they ask, mm-hmm. "Do you have an advanced directive?" Right. Well, I, and I don't have an advanced directive per se, but what I what I have is what I want to be done when I pass. And they take mm-hmm. all that information down. But now the hospitals are getting uh, getting involved at the time of admission, which mm-hmm. I don't think they ever used to do that. That meant, and not that many years ago. So I mean, it's who do we contact? Who's who gets you know who who takes care of your arrangements and so on and so forth. And all that information is there, and they have it on file, which I think is a a, a, a step in the right direction. Because I, mm-hmm. assuming that I'm lucid when I go in there, and I haven't been in a car accident and I'm a, and I'm unconscious, so if I'm going in there for elective surgeries or corrective surgeries or whatever, I can make those pronouncements right there and i certainly mm-hmm. it certainly does make things easier doesn't it it does and and it's it's really you never know what could happen you know you never know what you could have an allergic reaction to some sort of medication uh anything can happen and it's good to just always be prepared it's always that boy scout motto of always being prepared uh, but the advanced directives, I, I wish that everybody would have one. I wish that they would complete the form. And more importantly, I wish that people would tell the healthcare proxies that they list what their wishes are. Because you can have everything set. You can give your advanced directive to your physician. They can have it in your hospital records. They can have it everywhere. But if the people don't know what it is that you want, you're not being helped very well. And there are some people who put the advanced directive in a safe deposit box, and that's not where it's supposed to go. I recommend that people put it in a manila envelope and tape it to your refrigerator. So if anything happens, it's there. You know where it is. You grab it and you go to the hospital or right. wherever. Right. Um, but keep it keep it someplace visible. Throw a copy in your glove compartment. Mm-hmm. You never know when you're going to need anything like this. But definitely now, speak with people about your wishes. 
How do you, how do you uh, recommend to people that they initiate the discussion? During the holidays, I think it's a great time to do it because you're with your loved ones most often, and and um, it's you know when when you're dealing with Hanukkah or Christmas or, or any holidays or family gatherings, you know it's nice to check in with people and say, oh, and by the way. <laughs> Mm-hmm. When I die or when I'm in the hospital and I'm dealing with end-of-life issues, I want this. And it's something that, you know, people from the age of 18 on can be talking about because you can have advanced directives at the age of 18. And even some people are talking about advanced directives for people who are younger, getting them thinking about these things already. Um, but just bringing up the discussion, there's death everywhere we see it every single day around us in the newspapers on the news just everywhere it's not something that we can miss so i would suggest that people just bring it up and say you know there's something that that i heard on the radio today there's something that i saw on the internet there's something that i learned about today and i think that we really need to discuss it and talk about it and remember with advanced directives though they're they're not set in stone you can change these things but bringing up the conversation, just saying, I really would like to discuss what my wishes are if I'm unable to speak for myself during a medical event. Because more often than not, people want to have their wishes met than somebody else's. And if you don't fill out these forms, somebody else is going to be in control and they may do something that you don't want. And unfortunately, as I was saying before, again, I really want to stress that you talk to people about what your wishes are because... Again, you can give out this form to anybody, but if you don't tell them what you want, you're not going to have a good experience. And unfortunately, that happened with my mother. And so it's very close to the chest for me. I really want people to hear that. Uh Please please tell people what your wishes are and, and make sure everybody knows so that your wishes are met. Because my mother ended up suffering for six weeks and she shouldn't have. But the people in charge didn't follow through. What what do you think people should have in a very good advanced directive? What are some what are some of the component parts to a a, a solid um all encompassing advanced directive? Well there's some generic advanced directives that are really quite good and there are some that that I re- will actually say, you know, do you want candles by your bedside at the hospital? And that's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, oxygen and, and candles really don't mix well, yeah. uh, especially yeah. in hospitals. But um, basically putting down what your wishes are as far as do you want your life prolonged if if you are found, um, you know, do you want life-sustaining measures? Um, talking about do you want to be on a ventilator or not? With CPR, and as we get older, CPR gets a little bit more difficult, and, and I'd encourage people to speak with their physicians about this, depending on their their age, their body type, uh, disease process, and so forth. Sometimes um, CPR can do more damage, and, and it's not a great way to go. Um, I was a deputy coroner for a while, and, and seeing... Uh, Assisting with autopsies, it was interesting to see the results of what CPR could do to some very elderly folks, uh, just a busted sternum, ribs, and so forth. When you're younger, CPR is definitely a benefit, but when you're much, much older, it may not be such a great benefit. But I think that the most important thing is talking about your end-of-life care wishes as far as do you want life-sustaining measures? And that's a tricky one. It's important to note, too, depending on your age, and this is why it's so important to discuss this with your physician, your age and and, and your aging process. Because say, for instance, you were a ballerina, and if you're now unable to walk or if you've got levels of confusion or something from whatever medical event you've had, how much treatment do you want for something like that? Do you do you want to continue? If if your life has been about dancing, do you, are you going to be able to have a quality of life without it? 
you've got into major psychological issues as well. And again, that's why I emphasize talk with your physician, talk with other people about this issue. It's not something to be taken so lightly. Talk to me a little bit, if you would, please, about navigating the maze of the the, the medical system, uh, especially when you're in grief. I mean, it just uh, there's all kinds of things that are that we're going to do this, we need to do this, we got to do this, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And at some point, um, if you're not strong enough or willing to say stop, I don't want that. The patient doesn't want didn't want that. That is made clear to me. Uh, and if it's not written down, um, what's going to happen? You know, it's this goes back to the discussion we had about the grieving issue. Yes. Because if you're, you know, I had I was the co-chair of the LA County Bar Association Bioethics Committee years ago, and I had come up to Washington State to help out with my great aunt who was at the University of Washington, the hospital there, the medical center. And a resident was saying that we need to put in a central line for her. And I was not listed as a healthcare proxy in her advanced directive, but family members were, and they asked for my assistance. And I knew that my relationship with my great-aunt was very close so that she would be comfortable with me helping with any decision-making. So I said, you know, what is the purpose of putting in the central line? And, and the resident said, you know, just make her comfortable. And we knew that, you know, it, it probably isn't going to make her much more comfortable. I really wanted her to get into palliative care. They were still trying to treat her when it was clear to to us that she was not getting better. She had made several attempts to get better in the past. The doctors had tried treating her. Nothing was helping. She was ready. She knew she was dying. She was unfortunately in the ICU so the doctors were still trying to do everything that they could. And the family was pretty much battered down by this resident saying, you know, we need to do this now, we need to do it now, it's going to help her feel more comfortable. And they kept referring back to the advanced directive. And the resident said, you know what, that's only a guideline and we really don't have to follow it. And I I was livid. I was in so much grief and so much just frustration and, and anger And hearing what this resident said, I I called one of um, my colleagues on the bioethics committee and said, there's a resident telling me that that my great aunt's advanced directives are just a a guideline that they don't have to follow. And they were so nice. I like, Christine, get in there and fight. And so I jumped in and I said, no, 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 you've got to follow these. And the family finally said, just just do whatever you're going to do and and let's just be done with it. And he said, fine, it'll take 20 minutes. My aunt was screaming for an hour. They were torturing her. And the family was just, we're never doing this again. And the moment that they finished, I said, that's it. She needs to go for palliative care, and that's all. No more. And they finally got her into palliative care, and some other residents had come by who had been treating her earlier, and they said, wow, she looks really good and peaceful and comfortable. We haven't ever seen her like this before. Of course not. You've been treating her. You've been torturing this woman to try and get her to feel better when it wasn't happening. Nature was taking its course. The woman was dying. When it comes to navigating the medical system, I just think you need somebody who knows it. And that's why for healthcare proxy, find somebody who knows the medical system. But it was hell that you had to put my family through this to try and help our great aunt deal with something like this in the grief that we were having and and experiencing and and trying to navigate through and explain to a resident, you know what, advanced directives are not a guideline. You follow these. So trying to educate people when you're in grief, again, it's like trying to advocate. It's very challenging. It's very hard to do. And going back, Pete, to the comment you were making about how when you go into the hospital these days, and they want to know everything and have your advanced directive and so forth, even just, you know, an outpatient surgery or something. I had surgery years ago, just reconstructive shoulder surgery, and we had to go through the whole advanced directive, and I, I listed a friend of mine who was a medical professional, and my father was there, and he said, why aren't you putting my name down? I said, because she'll be able to handle things. And my father started to cry. He was so upset that he wasn't going to be making decisions for me. And I said, Dad, 
you're crying over the fact that I didn't even list you as the person as my healthcare proxy. How would you handle things if if I were dying? Would you be able to say let her go, or would you would you honor my wishes, or would you just keep pushing? So it's it's very very difficult. It's a difficult decision, and again, it, it's something that I really really wish that that if people are going to have any sort of New Year's resolutions at all, please, if you don't get your advanced directives completed this year, have it as a New Year's resolution. Do it January 1st through January 2nd and when you're sober after all the New Year's parties. But please, please fill these things out and talk to people about them. And so you, many just, people... you just don't want to end up you know, hurt and, and in a condition that you don't want to be in. Uh, maybe the case that maybe they should wait till January fifth because they may still feel like dying on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, agreed. <laughs> agreed. Um, uh, as far as end of life care, I mean the actual caring for somebody at the end of life. Uh, two questions that uh, that were amongst some of the things that I saw here that you sent me is where do you want to die and how do you want to die. Touch mm-hmm. a, touch on those if you don't mind. Well, where do you want to die? It's interesting because some people, there, there's an interesting population mix. Some people want to definitely die at home. Some people want to definitely die in the hospital because they don't want their home to be where somebody died. They don't want their loved ones to have to deal with that. Um, and others would prefer to die at home because they certainly don't want to be in a hospital situation. It's interesting, though, because a lot of people don't have that option. If you're dying um, in in a place where um, they don't have a palliative care unit in your hospital or even palliative care beds, they may discharge you to a skilled nursing facility or to home if you have a primary caregiver and can offer hospice to that patient, um, which I would definitely recommend in any case. Remember... I just want to remind people, too, that if you're having issues with a hospice team, you can always get a different one. So as we mentioned about being in the hospital, if you have a nurse or skilled nursing facility, if you have somebody there who you don't really like, get somebody else. You can do that with hospice teams, too. Um, but being in the hospital, if if they're not treating you um, in, in by treating, you know, doing everything that they can to to help keep you alive, they may want to discharge you to a skilled nursing facility or to home. Now when we say there's nothing more that we could do medically, that's actually not true because there is a palliative care that we could offer medically to patients. And again, palliative care units are cropping up more and more in this country because hospitals are finding that they're actually cost, there's a cost benefit to them. But there are some hospitals that don't have those units just yet. So people may end up in skilled nursing facilities. So it's important to talk to your family about that as well because if you do want to die in a hospital, it may or may not happen for you. Talk to your physician about that. If you want to die at home, talk to your family. Have a plan in place. Talk to people about who would be able to be a primary caregiver. In the United States, and in, in most places, we find that primary caregivers, the task usually falls to a daughter or some female relative. And there's a there's a great frontline episode on aging in America where they were talking about, a bioethicist was saying that unless you have at least three female relatives, um, you're going to have a hard time finding a caregiver. So it could be a daughter-in-law, a niece, a daughter, anybody. Um, that's not to say that men can't be caregivers, because I've met quite a few wonderful male caregivers. Um, dying in the hospital, some people, like I said, would like to do that, but dying at home would be more of a reality if you have the caregivers available. How do you want to die is another question to discuss with your physician. Do you want to be as lucid as possible? during this process, depending on the disease process that you have at the time. Um, do you want to die in um, with your loved ones around you? Do you want to die uh, with dignity and grace? Do you want to die just completely out of it? 
Um, do you want to be knocked out when you're dying? So those questions are, are are important to discuss again with your physician and with your family, because some people just don't don't even want to be involved. They just knock me out. When it happens, it's going to happen. And other people say, no, I really want to be as lucid as possible and spend as much time with my family as I possibly can. I've had patients who um, have been very creative about the dying process, who have been interested in um, taking off, quote-unquote, in in various um, outfits. (laughs) I had a patient who uh, was close to death once we were called and the hospice nurse and I were called and went to see her and she came back and, and was lucid and she said, you know, I just kind of wanted to test the waters. I said, okay. And two weeks later when she died, before she had died, she had asked her grandchildren to paint her nails and, and make her look really good. So apparently she had seen something that she thought she had to get dressed up for. So thinking about these sorts of things. How do you want to die? Um, do you want to die dressed up? It's just, it's kind of the sky's the limit. It's people's creativity. It's kind of like where people will also hold a wake before they die to celebrate their lives. It's it's up to, to people what they want to do. But it's something to talk with your physician about and your family, definitely. Well, this reminds me of a story. I've got to throw this story in. Uh there's a story about this gentleman who died and he, he wanted to be he was he was a big time football fan and he wanted to he wanted to be buried in his lazy boy recliner <laughs> with a with a beer in one hand and a cigar in the other. Uh-huh. Wearing wearing his favorite team's pajamas. And uh that's how he wanted to be put to his final rest and it was accomplished mm-hmm. and and after the fact uh, somebody asked his wife, uh, how much did the the funeral cost to have this done? He says, she said, well, the normal funeral activities were probably about 1500 and uh, the the plot was uh, 2000 and to have him with the clothing and so on and so forth and the special care to have him in the chair was about another 1000 and I had a $50,000 uh, uh, burial policy. And she said, well, that's not bad. Uh, what's the rest of it go for? She said it went for the memorial stone. And she said, memorial stone, how big is it? And she said about three and a half carats. <laughs> that's a great story. So uh, if I had a rim shot, I'd have played one, but I, <laughs> but I, don't, but I don't have one. Uh, but it, and I think that I don't know where I saw that it was probably some Facebook thing or something. I don't know where it was, <laughs> but it, but I mean it's an example of what we're talking about. You can die however you want to die. Was, wasn't mm-hmm. there something not that long ago who a guy was buried in his Cadillac or something? Yeah, uh, I mean it, it's it's very interesting. There's actually in Southern California, there's a drive-up funeral home now, where people could uh, just drive through and see the casket, offer their condolences, and keep going. Hmm. I'll be darned. Yeah. Well. Yeah. It's been a lot of busy times over there in Southern California. Can't uh, yeah. <laughs> can't, can't take the time to get out and go pay your last respects in a funeral home. Uh, that's that's pretty amazing. That's absolutely mm-hmm. amazing. Uh, part of funeral planning and all of this information that we've been discussing is final 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 resting, if you want to call it that. Uh, there's costs involved, and you mentioned the fact that you were involved in. Uh, costing a funeral, uh, and mm-hmm. you found that you could get a casket at Costco for considerably less than yeah. what the uh, mortuary was charging. Um, yeah. So, but funeral costs can be negotiated, can't they? They can, to some extent, depending on the funeral home. I think um, I know that you know we negotiated with the caskets and, and other things that. Depending on the size of the funeral home, if it's a local community funeral home, you probably could. And there are, there are oh, my God, I, I've met, again, I, I kind of blasted the funeral industry, but there were some incredible people when I was working in hospice who would do whatever they could to help the families and, and work something out financially. They, a lot of them have payment plans. Um, some are good, some aren't. But, uh, again, considering these 
considering what arrangements you want, as you were saying, too, if you can do that, you help the survivors so much, just making all the plans. All you have to do is make one phone call and it's done, and and you can go and grieve in, in a healthy way. But negotiating comes into play, and there are some places that will really, really work well with the families and help and do as much as they can. And there was a great... I don't know if you saw that um, HBO, I think it was HBO or PBS, no, it was PBS, um, did The Undertaking. Hmm. Um, it was a documentary that. that was fabulous, and it was about a family-run funeral home that, that generations had been running this, and, and they did everything that they could for families. And and that's, that's what we need. We need more of those. We don't need funeral industry that's that's all out for profit. For those that, that are really helping the families and, and making a difference. Yeah, everything on a spreadsheet. Yeah, exactly. There, there are other options, obviously, when planning when planning your funeral and and organ donation, full body donation. They're all options. Uh, a lot, of, a lot of people, I don't think, fully understand. Uh, if they say, "I'm going to donate my body to science." Um, there, there may be a case where the body would go to science and the body would never be seen again. Correct? Mm-hmm. Or yeah. there may be the case. There may be the case where the body would go to science. They're going to do what they need to do, harvest whatever they're going to harvest, and then mm-hmm. send the remains back in one form or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's all kinds of options there too, aren't there? There are, and and you know, I would definitely check with medical schools in your area to see if they they want the body. Some don't. Um, some may require that you have to transport the body, depending. Um, so there may be some costs involved. Uh, but I'm I'm big on organ donation, and and I really wish that people would donate more if, or donate if they could. Um, there was one woman who worked at hospice, who um, unfortunately died out of the blue, um, and she was able to help 16 people uh, with her organ donation. Wow. And so that's a lot, and, and I think that that if each and every one of us could do this, then then we'd be helping our our neighbors, our our communities so much. And you know, it's not like we really need much when we're dead, so it, it could be very beneficial. Well, that's that's just it, and and people, uh, there's so much religion and religious uh, fervor, actually. That uh, mm-hmm. enters in so many of into so many of these decisions, and I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying sometimes it um, may shortstop something from uh, what is a, a grieving process, although a natural process, but a, mm-hmm. but a heart-wrenching process. It may stop it from being a beneficial process as well. Yeah. Uh, it's just when 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 you have the opportunity like this, you said this woman don't was uh, she was able to help sixteen people. Six, sixteen people. I mean, uh, that's that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, I, I really, I really wish that that people would consider this. And again, it's it's the holidays. You're you're with loved ones. Please talk about it now. Don't wait. You never know what can happen. Well, that, that brings up uh, uh, one final question. There's so many other things that you and I have not even entered into a discussion of uh, with regard to uh, the aging process in and of itself. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to have you back just just to discuss the aging. <laughs> I love that and, and the process of aging. And we'll and let's schedule. Let's just tentatively schedule that here on the air for sometime after, right after the first of the year, because I think that would be it's. We're all getting older every day, so we may as well get to it before we all get too old. Uh, but one of the, the one of the last things that I wanted to talk to you about, or have you talk to us about, is how do you suggest people cope with grief during the holidays? Because there are going, there's there's going to you always hear stories about something happened to somebody, and it's a, just a heart rendering story. Yeah. Uh, and and it happened over the holidays, and what a shame it happened over the holidays. It was going to happen sooner or later, anyhow. Chances are good, yeah. but. Uh, what about over the holidays? How do you deal with it over the holidays? Well, Dr. Ken Doka from the Hospice Foundation of America suggests a few things. And one is that you plan for the holidays. Um, do your best to plan. Be aware of, of, of the family 
the discussions that are going to happen. Try not to stress yourself out. If you're the one who's hosting the the family, um, see see if you can get help and support. Um, holidays are probably not going to be the same. Trying to recognize that and understand that. Be careful not to um, isolate yourself too much. Be around people. It's it's easy for us to feel very lonely at this time, and it's important to step out of that as much as possible. Uh, remember that the holidays are also going to impact children, and should be aware of that. Uh, so they come up. Dr. Kendoka came up with the three C's. He says, choose, um, be aware of, of what your activities are, decide what they're going to be, and participate in them. Communicate with others how you're feeling and compromise with your family about what it is that you can do. I add another C to that just to be caring, um, caring for yourself. In, in our society, when we say that, people kind of take it as, as be selfish when it's not, it's if, if we're not caring for ourselves, we're not able to care for other people. So care for yourself. Take it easy. Don't have super huge high expectations of what you're able to do during the holidays. Um, and with children in particular, children may want to set a, a place at the table for a loved one who's died, saying, well, you know, well, Uncle Joey may still be around, so I want to set a place for him. Really be patient and communicate with that child. Talk with that child about what he or she is saying and feeling. Um, and, and please, children know so much and and offer so much to us and, and have such an amazing insight when it comes to death and dying if we would listen to them. So please be patient with children and, and listen. We tend to talk at children. Please listen to what the child has to say. But be very caring and, and very thoughtful of yourself and, and those around you and communicate how you're feeling in such a way as, as not to yell or be upset with somebody but to say gently, you know, I'm really struggling. I, I need some time. I need some space. I need some love. I need a hug. It, it's okay to talk. And communication, we do it every single day. And sometimes we just we just don't do it right. So, so just be open in, about how you're feeling during the holidays, and, and hopefully people will get through them okay. It, it could be pretty devastating. I, I I had several patients who died on Christmas Day one year, and, and, and to this day I, I know that the families still really struggle with it, and this is like 10 years ago. Hmm. So just be patient with yourself, and don't overdo anything if you don't want to. Listen to how you're feeling. Sure. Go, just kind of go with whatever it is at the moment. Exactly, exactly. Well, Dr. Gavorkian, I tell you, this has been a, an absolutely lickety-split hour that we've spent together. Um, uh, I want to thank you very much for, for being a guest on the show today. And as I Thank said you earlier, for having me. It's been my pleasure, believe me. And uh, as I said, I, I do want to have you back sometime in January so we can talk about the aging process in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, that is huge, and it's certainly huge for uh, the, the boomer population because, after all, we all are getting older, and none of us are going to get out of this thing alive. So uh, <laughs> we need to we need to make sure that we understand that process as well, uh, mm -hmm. because that that's all that's all part of it. Um, before we go, I would like you to give us any information. Uh, uh, with regard to how people can get hold of you, any of your services that you offer, and so on and so forth. So uh, for the purpose of uh, of you doing that, we're going to call this your shameless self-promotion. <laughs> so well, tell us people what... people can get in touch with me. I have a website and a blog, and I'm doing more on the blog these days. Um, and it's just Dr. Kevorkian on Dying and Death. Uh, dot com or blogger dot com. You can Google me, Dr. Christine Kevorkian, and my website is drkkevorkian dot com. And I offer consulting services and grief support by phone or by Skype uh, for folks who need it. And um, consulting with families who are dealing with end of life care issues. And so, please feel free to call or uh, email me um, at info at drkkevorkian dot com. And, and I can, I will do my best to help you in any situations you have. I have a sliding scale. Uh, economically, people are struggling right now, so I certainly don't want to add to that stress for anybody. 
please feel free to email me. And I'll, right. if you don't mind, Pete, I'd, I'd like to post a couple of things on your site. Sure, um, go right ahead. Just so that people can, can see some of the information that we were talking about today. That's fine. That's fine. Okay. So, uh, but a matter of fact, I'll give you a, I'll give you a quick jingle right after we sign off this show, and uh, you and I can okay. visit on a couple of other things as well. Okay. Well, here again, thank uh, thank you very much uh, on behalf of our listeners for taking the time to be with us, and we certainly do appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you again very soon. Thanks for being a guest today. Thank you. And we've been listening to Dr. Christine Kaborkian on the topic of death and dying, something that we're all going to experience one way or another. Uh, we uh, we all have to uh, have to face it, whether we like it or not, and it's best to be prepared. That having been said, we hope you'll have a wonderful balance of your day today and be back tomorrow. We have some more good programming for you and some other great guests. So please uh, enjoy the rest of your day, be healthy, and we'll talk to you again real soon. Take care, everybody. interesting conversations to the world. Be sure to follow us on Twitter where we tweet as Boomer and Babe and on Facebook as Pete Peters 47. As always, you can friend us on Blog Talk Radio or sign up for our newsletter at boomerandthebabe.com. Email us at host at boomerandthebabe.com with any of your comments. Remember, at 50, you're just getting started. 